We are continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 30 this morning. Luke chapter 4, verse 16 through 30. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and these fine gentlemen will bring your Bible right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Luke chapter 4, verse 16 through 30 today. All right, starting in verse 16, we read, speaking of Jesus, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to those captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And then they said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, you will surely say to this, this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, surely I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath, in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them were cleansed except name in the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust them out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. <laughs> I love that last verse. The title of my message this morning is The Ministry of the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we can spend in your word. Holy Spirit, thank you for revealing to us the things that we need to hear individually as a church. Not only information, God, but application into our lives. We thank you for the work of your spirit that you're doing in our church and in our lives. And we thank you for uh, just the opportunity to be together. Lord, we pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, would you especially touch their heart, help them to see their need for you, turn from their sin and cry out to you today. Thank you for this time of communion we can spend together at the end of service, Lord, and we just praise you for it, all in Jesus' name. Amen. I found a a list of useless facts that I thought were amusing, just useless facts. That the 7-Up was created, the drink was created in 1929. 7 was selected because it came in a 7-ounce bottle. And Up was because that's the indication where the bubbles went up in the 7-Up. Now you know. Mosquito repellents don't actually repel. They hide you. The spray blocks the mosquito's sensors so they don't, don't know you're there. Now you know. An ostrich's eye is bigger than its brain. <laughs> You probably knew that one. 
Uh, they're about two inches in diameter, which is around the size of a ping pong ball, and their brains are smaller. So here's another fun fact you, you need to know. Rabbits cannot vomit. There you have it. They can't vomit. A rabbit's digestive system does not move in reverse, meaning rabbits can't do what cats do, you know, cough up a hairball. Three more. The king of hearts is the only king without a mustache. Walt Disney was afraid of mice, and you can't lick your elbow. I want to see if anybody's trying it. Okay. I said a list of useless facts. But here is a fact that is very, very useful. There has never been a generation that has been closer to the return of Jesus Christ than we are right now. Take any number of prophecies that point to Jesus' return. Look around the world today, and it's amazing how many things fit like never before. See, we don't look around at the signs and try and make it fit into Scripture. We look at the Scriptures and then we look around and go, wow, this is exactly what Jesus said it would be like. This is exactly what God's Word said would happen. Take, for example, the Bible says that in the last days, during the Great Tribulation period, there will be a one-world religion, Revelation 13, 12. Speaking of the Antichrist and the false prophet, he will exercise all authority of the first beast in his presence and cause the earth and all who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So, maybe you've heard of this. There'll be a one-world religion. Maybe you've heard of this. It's really the next one-world religion headquarters set to open in 2023. The headquarters is called the Abrahamic Family House. It's being built on an island in the Middle Eastern city of Abu Dhabi. There's a picture of it. According to its website, the Abrahamic Family House will be a beacon of mutual understanding, harmonious coexistence, we've heard that word all over the place, and peace among people of faith and goodwill. Interesting, this one world religion headquarters will have three buildings. The buildings will each represent a mosque, a church, and a synagogue. However, the church will not be permitted to have a cross on the building as a method of identifying it because it's illegal to display a cross on the building in the UAE. And they have a fourth space not affiliated with any specific religion that will be, in, they say, an educational center where all people can come together as a single community devoted to mutual understanding and peace. One world religion. They say in the last days, uh, another prophecy is a one world government, a one world united economy, globalism. We're certainly seeing that today. Scripture reveals in Daniel chapter 7, Revelation chapter 13, that the Antichrist will unite the world in a one world government, one united economy. Now, every person will be required to take a, a mark in order to buy or sell goods of any kind. It could be an actual physical mark, or it could be some little technological uh, type of, of piece of, of equipment, uh, uh, but it's certainly in place today. And we've also seen through COVID-19 how easy it was to regulate and force really people uh, in certain places where they're not able to buy or sell without having that vaccination, proof of vaccination. We can't buy, you can't come in here without proof of vaccination. How easy it would be just one little step further and you can't come in here unless you have that mark of the beast. You can't buy, you can't sell. We're right there. How about a, a one world economy? Now, this push has been around for a while, but this has intensified in the last few years. Like a little over two weeks ago, the World Economic Forum, perhaps you've heard of these guys uh, in Switzerland, uh, the head of it is that one uh, man by the name of Klaus Schwab. Their motto is for the future of the world, which is own nothing and be happy. 
Here's a tweet from uh, Ida Aachen, member of the Parliament of Denmark and member of the World Economic Forum. It's since been removed, so you can't find it. But the tweet says, Welcome to 2030. I owe nothing, have no privacy, and life has never been better. Yeah, the reality is you will owe nothing, but they will be really happy about that because they'll have everything. I mean, since that push for, you know, the motto, you will owe nothing and be happy, got so much negative press, they took it off social media and claimed they never said it. But, but many of us who, who are familiar with the stuff saw it on their webpage. <clears throat> you know, if you know anything about uh, WF, you know, they're pushes for the great global reset to change everything, globalism. They have their own YouTube channel where they boldly said right across on their YouTube channel, America will no longer be a superpower. So we know that's their goal. But the biggest sign of all that I believe that shows that we truly are living in the last days and Jesus' return is near is that of the regathering of the nation of Israel. When Israel became a nation in 1948, Jews from all over the world made their way back into the land. Just as, as prophesied by Isaiah, by Ezekiel, by Zechariah. And again, there's never been a generation that has been closer to the return of Jesus Christ than we are right now. And if you're going to be a true student of the Scriptures, then, then truly one thing you're going to have to be into is Bible prophecy. Because one-third of the Bible is prophecy. And just as there are hundreds of prophecies concerning Jesus' return to this earth in the New Testament, the, the fact is throughout all the Old Testament, there were more than 300 predictions concerning Jesus' first arrival that were completely fulfilled at his, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And this morning, we're going to look at one particular passage that was a fulfillment of one of those prophecies dealing with the Messiah's ministry. What it would be like, what the Messiah would do when he came into this world. So if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things concerning the ministry of the Messiah. That Jesus has come to, number one, deal with sin. Number two, fulfill prophecy. And number three, to build his church. Now, I want to give you a heads up. We're going to spend... 90% of our time on point number one. So don't be gone. He's not going to get to point number two or number three. We're going to close with point two and three. But we, so we'll start with number one. But, you know, the, really what the ministry, Messiah's ministry was about. Now, when it comes to ministry, it's not always easy. Last week, we looked at Jesus' battle with Satan there in the wilderness following his baptism. And the first thing that happened after God declared Jesus to be his beloved son was this extended season of spiritual warfare and temptation. Listen, calling and conflict go hand in hand. Ministry is not meant to be easy. That's why we need to pray for people who are answering the call to get involved in ministry for the first time. Be it children's ministry or, or sound ministry or the usher greeting ministry because almost without exception, the first thing that's going to happen is there's going to be a season of spiritual attack might show up in your marriage or in your business or in your health or your friendships. If Satan can, he will try and blow them out of the water before they even get their feet wet. Tried it with Jesus, he'll try it with you. Satan never gives up. Luke 4 tells us that he left Jesus until a more opportune time. See, the enemy just switched from a short game to a long game. If he can't win through an intense time of temptation or persecution, he'll gradually work to shape your attitudes in the wrong direction. I think there's always a part of us that want to believe that the Christian life, if lived correctly, should be easy. After all, Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. 
But he also said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have tribulation. You know, you don't see that verse on a throw pillow on your couch very much, do you? I'm not going to sit on that one. But Jesus always adds the good news to the bad news. He says, but do not fear. I have overcome the world. Well, now here in verse 16, the scene is Nazareth. Jesus is in his hometown. And we read that he came to Nazareth, verse 16, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So as his custom was, he went to the synagogue. You can say, as our custom is, you come to church on Sunday. Jesus thought it was important. We need to make it a priority in our lives. Now, it might help us to understand what was going on here if we understand the order of a service in the synagogue. It went first, something like this. First, they would sing a song from the Psalms. And then after that, they would recite Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 9, which is a passage called the, the Shema. O hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then a scripture would be read. Uh, first, a passage from Genesis through Deuteronomy, first five books of the Old Testament. Then a passage from one of the, the prophets. Then there'd be a word of instruction, what we call a teaching. And then the service would end with the pronouncing of the famous benediction from Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 through 26. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee. Be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. So if there was a visiting teacher, he would be called upon to read the portion from the prophets and then give the instruction. So here we see Jesus in verse 17 was handed the book from the prophet Isaiah. And then Jesus turns to a specific section of Isaiah and speaks specifically about his ministry and the ministry of the Messiah. Now, obviously, they could have handed him any of the prophets and, and Jesus could have pointed to himself because the whole book is, is about Jesus. But he, he chose this section here. Verse 17 says that he was handed the book of prophet Isaiah and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And we'll look at what was written in a moment. But he's, he's going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 61. Now, to the Jews in the synagogue, they knew Isaiah 61 was a prophetic passage. It was a messianic passage. What the ministry of the Messiah would be like. But as well, we would see they, they never expected Jesus to point the section of Scripture to himself. And we'll see what they do about it. But Jesus does. Now, this brings us to our first point. The ministry of the Messiah would be to deal with sin. Now, as we go along, I want to point out what sin does and how Jesus came to deal with it. Look now at verse 18 and 19. Jesus reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stops there. Jesus says, first of all, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Understand, understand rather, Jesus had set aside his own powers to, to live as a man. Every teaching he gave, every miracle he worked, every good deed he performed was as a human man walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have that same power of the Holy Spirit living in us as believers. In fact, Jesus said in John fourteen twelve, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I shall do, he shall do also, and greater work than these he shall do. How can we be like Jesus? How can we teach like he did? How can we do the things that he did by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit? So Jesus, Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me 
because he's anointed me. And you hear people say, well, he has this anointing or he has that anointing. But Jesus had the anointing too, but what, what did that consist of? Well, look at it. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Right off the bat, the ministry is to preach the gospel to the poor. That was his anointing in his life to preach the gospel to the poor. Listen, the effect of sin in a person's life is that sin makes you poor. Sin makes you poor. Some people think it's the other way around. I I wouldn't be such a sinner if I wasn't so poor. But we know that's not true because there's just as many, if not more, rich sinners than there are poor sinners. Actually, the poor being referred to here is, is, is not physically, it's spiritually. Those who are spiritually bankrupt because of sin, which at some point in our lives, all of us were. We're all bankrupt in the sense that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Listen, when you look at, at your righteousness prior to coming to Christ, it's like going to the bank and trying to withdraw money. And it says, insufficient funds. Or going to a restaurant, trying to pay for your bill. It says, car declined. You know, insufficient funds. And you feel like everybody's looking at it. So I got money, I just deposited my check. No, he's broke, he's broke. The same way, spiritually, sin leaves us spiritually broke. Spiritually poor. Spiritually bankrupt. Insufficient. No way of fixing the predicament that we're in. So in seeing that sin makes you poor... The ministry of the Messiah would be dealing with that sin to preach the gospel to the poor, to share with them that there is hope. Now, Jesus said in in the gospel of Matthew that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. To be poor in spirit is to realize how bankrupt you really are, to realize there's nothing you can do in your own strength or your own efforts to fix your condition. It's to realize your utter dependency upon God for everything, starting even with your salvation. Ask any non-believer if they think they're going to heaven. What's the first thing they say? Well, I've done some good, few good things. I, I've given to the poor. I help people. You know, I even put money in the Salvation Army can at Christmas time. Yeah, but, but that still leaves you spiritually poor. You can't earn your salvation. The Bible says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. To be poor in spirit means to recognize that you need to trust in you need to cling to, you need to depend upon Jesus and rely on His Holy Spirit and for, even to, for you to walk and serve Him. You see, the true message of the gospel that it's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, what He did for us at the cross at Calvary by dying for our sins, rising again from the dead, that we are made rich. We are spiritually rich. We're saved. We go from being paupers to princes, from, from beggars to eating at the king's table. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, or rather, chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. He also said in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 4 and 5, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him and all utterance and all knowledge. I like that. The word for enriched speaks of spiritual wealth. Notice Paul says that we have been enriched in everything by him. Haven't you found that to be true in your relationship with Jesus? That he has enriched every area of our lives. Every area. In your marriage, in your friendships, in your business dealings, in the way you approach your job, in your view of the Bible. Even coming to church this morning, it's all enriched through this relationship with Jesus Christ. We come from all different backgrounds. 
Uh, some of us were, were, were more horrible than others of us before we came to Christ. But God brings us all in in this one place. We're enriched. We have that fellowship, that koinonia with one another because of what Jesus did for us. So in dealing with sin, Jesus has come to preach the good news, the gospel to the poor. The second thing that sin, sin does that Jesus came to deal with is that sin makes you brokenhearted. Because Jesus said in verse 18, he is sent to heal the brokenhearted. Why are people brokenhearted? Well, for a number of reasons. Probably the number one reason is guilt. Because sin leads to guilt and shame. I read a story about a minister who stood and addressed his congregation. He said, there's a certain man among us today who's flirting with another man's wife. Unless he puts $100 in the offering, his name will be read from the pulpit. When the offerings came in, there were $1,900, all $100 bills, and a $50 bill with a note attached to it that read, I'll have the other 50 on payday. Psychiatric doctors say that unresolved guilt is the number one cause of mental illness, suicide, prompts millions of, of Americans to gulp down pills to tranquilize their anxiety. People go around living with broken hearts all their life because they're guilty of sins and, and their conscience just keeps condemning them all the time. Instead of bringing it uh, and to Jesus, dealing with it and bringing it to Jesus, many give up. They go even further into sin to, to the point of trying to justify that which is sinful as being okay. Like abortion, like homosexuality. Well, I feel so bad about it. Now I just got to turn around to what's oh, okay. And more often than not, no one else may know what they did, why they had that guilt. But God who sees what we do in secret knows. They, they know. That's why they have that guilt in them in the first place. Now, you can respond in one of two ways. <clears throat> you can humble yourself and seek the Lord and try and find that, that, that forgiveness of that God to take away the guilt. Or you could you'll try and deal with it on your own. And, and a lot of times, it, it, it comes to even the extent of, of one taking their own life. We've seen that a lot with celebrities. Do you know that, that suicide is now the tenth leading cause of death and that an average of 132 Americans die by suicide a day. And the U.S. rates of suicide have risen dramatically over the last years. In 1999, 29,199 Americans took their own lives. In 2021, 47,646 Americans took their own lives. Listen, people are brokenhearted because of the sorrow and guilt that sin brings. And the Bible teaches, when we sow to the flesh, we will reap destruction. We will reap sorrow, Proverbs 22, 8. Because sin brings sorrow, sin breaks hearts and leaves people brokenhearted. Ask anyone who's gone through a divorce uh, or, uh, because of infidelity or, or, or who's a woman who's out an abortion. But you see, the good news is what Christ offers to those living under the effects of sin is the whole reason why he came. It's, it's the Messiah's ministry. Jesus came to those who are brokenhearted, to those who have been hurt in the deepest part of their being in their hearts, and He offers healing. He offers forgiveness. He offers comfort and peace. He offers to take that guilt away because He's the only one that can. Yeah, the world may offer you a quick fix, be it through a drug dealer or even a, a prescription drug. Well, hey, hey, take this drug and it'll make you feel better. You know, it'll cover the pain for a moment. You know, you, you, you know, you hear people, oh, you know, if I just eat this chocolate, the 30-pound bag of chocolate, I'll feel better. <clears throat> you might for a few minutes, you know, but you know what? Jesus doesn't just make you feel good for a moment. He does a permanent work of healing the pain and changing the heart. 
Again, a work that only he can do. And he begins by removing that guilt, by removing that shame. And we're told in his word, as far as the east is from us, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103, verse 12. Doesn't matter how far you've fallen, doesn't matter what you've done, he can reach out to you if you come to him and he'll give you new life. This brings us to the third thing that sin does. Sin takes you captive. And we see how Jesus came to deal with it. Verse 18 again says, Jesus reads, Jesus read, He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now we're told in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, that the unbeliever is in the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So many people walking around, they don't even know that, that, that the devil has them captive doing the devil's will. See, that's why the ministry of Jesus is to proclaim liberty to those that are taken captive. Now, years ago, I, I was involved in the prison ministry. It was the first teaching ministry that I got involved in. And, and I remember going to the prison for the first time, and it's pretty intimidating. If, if you, some of you have probably been in prison, but, but this is my first time. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I know all about it, you know. <laughs> but it was my first time. You know, it had this, this captive audience there. You know, where else are you going to go? And, but it was my first time teaching, and I was terrified. And I don't think I, I looked up from my notes one moment. I just read my notes, and, and the very end I said, so if you want to give your life to Christ, just raise your hand. All these hands went up. Because they recognized, man, they needed to be set free, free from their sin, free from the guilt of their sin. You know, and you think about this prison, these, these cells that these people are in. You know, you watch these TV shows, you know, the live TV shows of what, what prison is like. And, it's, it's, you know, they're held captive because of their crime. This little small four-by-eight cell with one little small door that they pass their food through. Such bondage. But you see, people are, are in bondage to sin in the same way they're trapped. It's like the story I read of this little plant called the Sendu plant. It's a beautiful little plant that's grown in Australia, bush country, uh, but it's deadly if you're an insect. <laughs> you, you see this shiny moisture on, this, on this, each leaf is sticky and it'll hold any but prisoner that touches it. And, and the struggle to get free is often useless for, for the movement of the insect causes the leaves to close even more tightly on it. You know, the, the, this innocent looking plant actually feeds upon its victim. There's a, there's a picture of it there. Oh, it looks so nice. I just want, just want to dab, just want to touch this thing. <laughs> You know, the, the thing is fighting for its life. Listen, Jesus uh, sets free those that are trapped in entanglement and sin. He's, he offers freedom to those living under the effects of sin, to those who are in bondage to it. Back to verse 18, Jesus comes to give recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus is saying, I've come to set you free. He says this over and over again. John 8, 32, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. John 8, 36, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Because those that come to him no longer have to live in that bondage of sin because he doesn't just set us free from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. He gives you the strength to resist temptation. He opens our eyes to the truth and frees us from oppression. What a great and awesome Savior we serve. Now next, Jesus says something interesting here in verse 19. He says, after all these things the Messiah has come to do, he finishes with, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What is that? Well, for the Jews, they were quite familiar with it. 
among the Jews, every seventh year, the Jews was the seventh, every seventh year was a Sabbath year where the Jews would take a year off from uh, from from uh, tilling their land. From from uh, they let their their land rest for a whole year, not plant their crops on it. And then on the fiftieth year, it was called the year of jubilee. Now during that celebration, all the land was to rest. No crops were planted, but. But, you know, all debt was, was cleared. You didn't owe anything anymore. You know, uh, all your property came back. You know, you owned your property. All the slaves were set free. Don't you wish we had that today? Every seven years, you have a whole year off from work. And then every 50 years, your mortgage is paid off. You have no credit card debt. You're all ready to go. No wonder they called it a year of jubilee. I'd be jubilant. But listen, spiritually, Jesus has come to wipe away all of our debt the debt of guilt and shame and sin, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus is saying that the year of Jubilee is here. The Messiah has come. The kingdom is at hand. And I love what Jesus did next in verse 20. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the tenant, went down and, and sat down, and all the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. I mean, you can just hear the per, to pervert, you can hear a pin drop. I mean, every, everyone knew Isaiah's prophecy described the ministry of the Messiah. Well, what would Jesus do? Is he going to instruct that this applies to another man? Is he going to instruct that it applies to himself? Well, we know what he does. Uh, verse 21. He says, look at verse 21. He says, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa. I mean, he, here he's claiming, hey, hey, I... I'm here. I am He. It's a definite moment. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah of Israel. What Isaiah 61 spoke of 700 years earlier, Jesus is now applying it all to Himself. Now their response should have been adulation, rejoicing, praise, honor, worship. But instead, we're going to see it's going to be attempted homicide. They're going to seek to throw Him off the cliff. Now not all did at first. Some people marveled. Look at verse 22. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which, which proceeded out of his mouth. Now the crowd of Nazareth was on the verge of belief until a few skeptical minds spewed their doubt. It says, and then they said, is this not Joseph's son? Hey, he's nobody special. I remember him. He, he grew up down the street. He's Joseph's boy. Oh, come on. And then Jesus says in verse 23, tells them, he said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. That phrase, physician, heal yourself, is a popular first century saying that the Jews used to challenge someone to live up to their hype. In other words, Jesus is saying, you guys are going to say to me, prove it. Do something spectacular. They'd wanted to perform some work that they have heard of, maybe turning the water to wine. Jesus would have none of it. Verse 24, then he said, surely I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. When Jesus said that, it had a little more sting than it does for us. And this was really the beginning of why they're going to to want to throw him over the cliff. See, Jesus here is referring to this well-documented fact that the Jews often rejected their prophets in the generation in which they ministered. Oh, they might respect Isaiah in the first century here. But back in Isaiah's own time, Tradition has it that their ancestors put him in a hollow tree trunk and sawed him in half. That doesn't sound like respect to me. Jeremiah, having escaped death several times previously, was later stoned to death by his own people. 
And then to really put it into perspective, Jesus quotes of a couple of Old Testament incidents that happened that's really going to send these guys over the top. Look at verse 25 to 27. He says, But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there's a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now Elijah and Elisha were the most respected prophets among the first century Jews. But in their own time, the Jews were a disobedient people. And the two episodes Jesus brings up are great stories to study in and of themselves. But the importance here is that God sent Elijah and Elijah to minister outside of Israel. Not to Jews, to Gentiles. So Jesus used them to illustrate that if if these Jews are going to reject him as their Messiah, God's going to send him beyond Israel to the Gentiles. Now, for them, that, that were fighting words. And, 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 you know, the Jews did reject Jesus. Not just the Jews in his hometown of Nazareth, but the nation officially rejected him. So then God sends the gospel out beyond Israel to the Gentiles, to us non-Jews, a work that he does even to this day. So how, what was their response with Jesus saying he would send the Messiah beyond Israel to the Gentiles? Look at verse 28. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. You know, exposing people's hearts is a dangerous business. You know, the gospel message is intense. It calls for a decision. You cannot remain neutral. You must accept Jesus. If you don't, you're rejecting him. You're either for him or you're against him. You know, he said in, Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. Now today, people may seem more civilized in their rejection of Jesus than, than the Jews at Nazareth were, but it amounts to the same thing that's going on here. Jesus offers life, but if you reject him, you're part of that crowd that, that, of humanity that seeks to push him away, to, to throw him off a cliff. But I love verse 30. It says, Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. No one was going to take his life. He would give his life, but no one would take it. Now how he got out of being thrown off a cliff, we're not told. Was it natural? Was it supernatural? Did the people part like the Red Sea? <laughs> Where'd he go? Where'd he go? And then no one's looking. I don't know. It'd be interesting to know. But the point is, Jesus was in complete control. Now, this brings us to point number two. But I promise the last two points are shorter. And Jesus giving us the description of his ministry, that is why he's come, first to deal with sin, but number two, to fulfill prophecy. Here's something that's very fascinating. Here Jesus is reading from Isaiah 61. We saw that in verse 18. But, but look at what is actually written in Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. We'll have it up on the screen. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Do you notice anything different? (laughs) After the words of the acceptable year of the Lord, we read in verse 20 that Jesus closed the book, 
gave it back to him, and the attendant sat down. Jesus stopped right before this verse in Isaiah that says, and the day of vengeance of our God. See, Jesus didn't come the first time to bring vengeance, but to bring salvation, to seek and to save those who are lost. That's why Jesus stopped when he did. This was a partial fulfillment of this prophecy. When he, Jesus declared his coming, uh, his coming here and inaugurated the acceptable year of the Lord. He's referring to the first coming to be the Savior of the world by dying at the, on the cross at Calvary. From that time on until right now, we are living in the acceptable year of the Lord, a time of gospel preaching, which you can accept the Lord or reject the Lord uh, and experience a personal and spiritual jubilee. But there's coming a day, a day of vengeance of our God. We know it as the Great Tribulation Period. A seven-year period in which the Bible says that, in Matthew 24, 22, that uh, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. I believe that that day is coming very soon. Signs are all here, folks. Uh, I mean, the one-world government, one-world religion, one-world monetary system, as we looked at already. How about the scriptures that talk about wars and rumors of wars? Maybe you heard this rumor going around. Uh, the four-star Air Force general who sent a memo a week ago Friday to the officers he commands that predicts the U.S. will be at war with China in two years and tells them to get ready to prep by firing a clip at a target and aim for the head. Wars and rumors of wars. How about finally shooting down that spy balloon that was casually making its way across the United States, taking pictures all along the way? And I saw a meme, a funny meme. It had a helium balloon with a with string coming down and a box of Chinese takeout food underneath it. <laughs> You know, it's interesting to me that, that uh, the fact the United States is not mentioned at all when it comes to Bible prophecy. My hope, my prayer is that because there were so many Christians in the U.S. that got saved, that, that got raptured out of the church, there, there wasn't much left of a nation here. Listen, Jesus is coming back soon, and he will complete the verse in Isaiah that he started some 2,000 years ago, the day of vengeance over God. The question is, are you ready? Here we read that Jesus was rejected as he fulfilled this prophecy of his first coming. And sadly, people still reject Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophecy of his second coming draws near. All comes down to a choice, to reject Jesus or accept him, to give your life to him and have that guilt and shame taken away, your burdens lifted, or continuing to live in sin and shame and guilt. This brings us to our final point. Jesus' ministry was to deal with sin, to fulfill prophecy, and thirdly, to build this church. How does Jesus build his church? It's through the church continuing the ministry of the Messiah. One of the last things that Jesus said to his disciples before he left this earth uh, and is passed down to all of us as believers is found in Matthew 28, verse 18 and 20, through 20. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Folks, we are quickly coming to the end of the age. The rapture is at hand. Jesus' return is near. But until Jesus comes for us, his church, his ministry now is our ministry. To build the church, to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. In other words, we're to preach Jesus. <laughs> because it's Jesus who heals the brokenhearted. It's Jesus who uh, sets the captives free. It's Jesus who opens the eyes to those that are blind to their own sin. And it's Jesus who sets at liberty those who are oppressed. Are we doing the ministry that God has called us to do? Are we pointing people to Jesus? 
Or do all they see in us is how angry we are and how horrible the world is getting? So easy to get our focus on the politics of our world. And, and, and as Christians, we should be, but, but it should not be our focus. Jesus should be our focus. And, and it's also so easy as Christians to be inward focused and not outward focused. So it's just, no, just us and no more, you know. No, we mustn't allow the cares of this world to distract us from the ministry of sharing the gospel, the hope of heaven, the forgiveness of sin. We mustn't allow the cares of this world to get us distracted from the cross, from what Jesus came to do. That's that old wonderful song, the wonderful cross. What makes it a wonderful cross is the one who died on it. So as we close and as we end our time of communion, as first and foremost, it's a time you need to make sure you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that you're born again, that you've cried out to Him, you ask God to forgive you for sin, you've given your life to Him. Then He'll take away that guilt, He'll take away that shame, He'll give you new life, He'll enrich your life. You go from a pauper to a prince, you'll be eating at the king's table. So much God has for you, you give your life to Jesus Christ. And I encourage you, do so before we partake of communion, or if you don't want to, don't partake of communion because the Bible teaches that if you take of these elements without being saved, you're really heaping judgment upon yourself. And I wouldn't want that for you. What I want for you is to come to faith in Christ today. But also communion is a time for us as Christians. From time to time, we get dirty from this world. We, we've maybe fallen into sin. And because of that, we were under guilt, maybe shame, maybe there's conviction. Communion is the time to confess it to the Lord and say, God, I'm sorry for that. And God will take it away just like he did when you first came to Christ. He forgives us. He cleanses us. And he wants us to not have any unconfessed sin. So it's a time to get right with the Lord. You know, Revelation 3.20, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. He was speaking to the church there. Now we use it for evangelism. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, open the door and he'll come in and he'll save you. But for us as well, Lord, have all access to my life. If there's any area of my life that, 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 that you need me to deal with, show me. I, I, I want to ask forgiveness. I, I want to be right with you. So as we enter into communion, make sure you're, you're walking with the Lord. You, you know the Lord. Confess anything. And then thirdly, if you're fine, just rejoice in this time. Remember what Jesus did for you on the cross. Your salvation. You're saved. You're born again. It's a time of rejoicing and remembering that Jesus is coming soon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the work that you're doing in each one of us, Lord. Thank you for the work that you've done in us for those of us that are saved. Lord, you, 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 we heard the gospel. We were poor. We were without any hope whatsoever, Lord. But you came and you opened up our eyes to your word. We responded, Lord, we're saved. Lord, help us to, to continue on the ministry that, that you had, Lord, to point people to you, to preach the gospel to the poor, to help heal the brokenhearted through the message of the gospel, to proclaim liberty for those that are taken captive. If they just come to you, Lord, in faith, they'd be set free. Lord, thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the anointing that you place on all of us as believers to go forth and, and share the gospel. Lord, I do pray right now as we prepare our hearts for communion, First of all and foremost, Lord, I pray that, that, that we're all here saved, Lord. And if not, I pray that they would make that commitment to know you if they're not. Secondly, Lord, if there's any guilt, any shame, any sin we've been dealing with that we've not confessed, we want to confess that to you now, Lord. Cleanse us, Lord. Forgive us, we pray. And Lord, we want to rejoice.
in the work of the cross. What you did for us. We're saved, Lord. We're blessed. Our sin has been forgiven. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.